Today I'll be reading the June 2023 Opinion of the Court in Lac du Flambeau Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians v. Coughlin. Justice Jackson delivered the opinion of the court in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Alito, Sotomayor, Kagan, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined. Justice Thomas filed an opinion concurring in the judgment. Justice Gorsuch filed a dissenting opinion. The Bankruptcy Code expressly abrogates the sovereign immunity of governmental units for specified purposes. The question presented in this case is whether that express abrogation extends to federally recognized Indian tribes. Under our precedents, we will not find an abrogation of tribal sovereign immunity unless Congress has conveyed its intent to abrogate in unequivocal terms. That is a high bar, but for the reasons explained below, we find it has been satisfied here. Part 1 Petitioner Lac du Flambeau Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians or the band, is a federally recognized tribe that wholly owns several business entities. In 2019, one of the band's businesses, Lendgreen, allowed respondent Brian Coughlin to borrow $1,100 in the form of a high-interest, short-term loan. But Coughlin filed for Chapter 13 bankruptcy before he fully repaid the loan. Under the Bankruptcy Code, Coughlin's filing of the bankruptcy petition triggered an automatic stay against further collection efforts by creditors, including Lendgreen. Yet, according to Coughlin, Lendgreen continued its efforts to collect on his debt, even after it was reminded of the pending bankruptcy petition. Coughlin alleges that Lendgreen was so aggressive in its efforts to contact him and collect the money that he suffered substantial emotional distress and, at one point, even attempted to take his own life. Coughlin eventually filed a motion in bankruptcy court seeking to have the stay enforced against Lendgreen, its parent corporations, and the band. Collectively, petitioners. Coughlin also sought damages for emotional distress along with costs and attorney's fees. Petitioners moved to dismiss. They argued that the bankruptcy court lacked subject matter jurisdiction over Coughlin's enforcement proceeding as the band and its subsidiaries enjoyed tribal sovereign immunity from suit. The bankruptcy court agreed it held that the suit had to be dismissed because the Bankruptcy Code did not clearly express Congress's intent to abrogate tribal sovereign immunity. In a divided opinion, the Court of Appeals for the First Circuit reversed, concluding that the Bankruptcy Code unequivocally strips tribes of their immunity. In so holding, the First Circuit deepened a split among the Courts of Appeals on this question we granted certiorari to address the lower court's inconsistent holdings. Part 2 Section A 
two provisions of the Bankruptcy Code lie at the crux of this case. The first, 11 U.S.C. Section 106A, abrogates the sovereign immunity of governmental units. It provides, Notwithstanding an assertion of sovereign immunity, sovereign immunity is abrogated as to a governmental unit to the extent set forth in this section. Section 106A goes on to enumerate a list of code provisions to which the abrogation applies, including the provision governing automatic stays. The second relevant provision is Section 101.27. That provision defines governmental unit for purposes of the code. It states that the term means United States, State, Commonwealth, District, Territory, Municipality, Foreign State, Department, Agency, or Instrumentality of the United States, but not a United States trustee while serving as a trustee in a case under this title. A state, a commonwealth, a district, a territory, a municipality, or a foreign state, or other foreign or domestic government. The central question before us is whether the abrogation provision in Section 106A and the definition of governmental unit in Section 101.27, taken together, unambiguously abrogate the sovereign immunity of federally recognized tribes. Section B. To abrogate sovereign immunity, Congress must make its intent unmistakably clear in the language of the statute. This well-settled rule applies to federally recognized tribes no less than other defendants with sovereign immunity. We have held that tribes possess the common law immunity from suit traditionally enjoyed by sovereign powers. Our cases have thus repeatedly emphasized that tribal sovereign immunity, absent a clear statement of congressional intent to the contrary, is the baseline position. This clear statement rule is a demanding standard. If there is a plausible interpretation of the statute that preserves sovereign immunity, Congress has not unambiguously expressed the requisite intent. The rule is not a magic words requirement, however. To abrogate sovereign immunity unambiguously, Congress need not state its intent in any particular way nor need Congress make its clear statement in a single statutory section. The clear statement question is simply whether, upon applying traditional tools of statutory interpretation, Congress's abrogation of tribal sovereign immunity is clearly discernible from the statute itself. Part 3 we conclude that the Bankruptcy Code unequivocally abrogates the sovereign immunity of any and every government that possesses the power to assert such immunity. Federally recognized tribes undeniably fit that description. Therefore, the Code's abrogation provision plainly applies to them as well. Section A 
Several features of the provision's text and structure compelled this conclusion. As an initial matter, the definition of governmental unit exudes comprehensiveness from beginning to end. Congress has rattled off a long list of governments that vary in geographic location, size, and nature. The provision then proceeds to capture subdivisions and components of every government within that list. And it concludes with a broad catch-all phrase, sweeping in other foreign or domestic governments. When faced with the analogously structured provisions in other contexts, we have noted their all-encompassing scope. We find the strikingly broad scope of Section 10127's definition of governmental unit to be significant in this context as well. The catch-all phrase Congress used in Section 10127 is also notable in and of itself. Few phrases in the English language express all-inclusiveness more than the pairing of two extremes. Rain or shine is a classic example. If an event is scheduled to occur rain or shine, it will take place whatever the weather that day might be. Same with the phrase near and far. If people are traveling from near and far, they are coming from all over the map, regardless of the particular distance from point A to point B. The pairing of foreign with domestic is of a piece with those other common expressions. For instance, if someone asks you to identify car manufacturers, foreign or domestic, your task is to name any and all manufacturers that come to mind, without particular regard to where exactly the cars are made or the location of the company's headquarters. Similarly, at the start of each Congress, a cadre of newly elected officials solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That oath, which each member of Congress who enacted the bankruptcy code took, indisputably pertains to enemies anywhere in the world. Accordingly, we find that by coupling foreign and domestic together and placing the pair at the end of an extensive list, Congress unmistakably intended to cover all governments in Section 10127's definition, whatever their location, nature, or type. It is also significant that the abrogation of sovereign immunity in Section 106A plainly applies to all governmental units as defined by Section 10127. Congress did not cherry-pick certain governments from Section 10127's capacious list and only abrogate immunity with respect to those it had so selected. Nor did Congress suggest that, for purposes of Section 106A's abrogation of sovereign immunity, some types of governments should be treated differently than others. Instead, Congress categorically abrogated the sovereign immunity of any governmental unit that might attempt to assert it. Section B. Other aspects of the Bankruptcy Code reinforce what Section 106A's and Section 101.27's plain text conveys. 
Through various provisions, the Bankruptcy Code offers debtors a fresh start by discharging and restructuring their debts in an orderly and centralized fashion. The automatic stay requirement, for example, keeps creditors from dismembering the estate while the bankruptcy case proceeds. The Code's discharge provision enjoins creditors from trying to collect debts that have been discharged in a bankruptcy case, and its plan confirmation provisions, as relevant here, bind each creditor to whatever repayment plan the bankruptcy court approves, whether or not the claim of such creditor is provided for by the plan, and whether or not such creditor has objected to, has accepted, or has rejected the plan. These protections sweep broadly by their own terms. To facilitate the Code's orderly and centralized debt resolution process, these provisions' basic requirements generally apply to all creditors. Courts can also enforce these requirements against any kind of non-compliant creditor, whether or not the creditor is a governmental unit, by virtue of Section 106A's abrogation of sovereign immunity. At the same time, so as to avoid impeding the functioning of governmental entities when they act as creditors, the Code contains a number of limited exceptions. For instance, the automatic stay requirement does not preclude governmental units from enforcing their police and regulatory powers in certain proceedings, or from pursuing specific tax-related activities. The Code additionally exempts from discharge certain debts for a fine, penalty, or forfeiture owed to a governmental unit. Reading the statute to carve out a subset of governments from the definition of governmental unit, as petitioner's view of the statute would require, risks upending the policy choices that the Code embodies in this regard. That is, despite the fact that the Code generally subjects all creditors, including governmental units, to certain overarching requirements, under petitioner's reading, some government creditors would be immune from key enforcement proceedings while others would face penalties for their non-compliance. And, while the Code is finely tuned to accommodate essential government functions like tax administration and regulation, as a general matter, petitioners would have us find that certain governments are excluded from those provisions reach, notwithstanding the fact that they engage in tax and regulatory activities too. There is no indication that Congress meant to categorically exclude certain governments from these provisions' enforcement mechanisms and exceptions, let alone in such an anomalous manner. Section C. Our conclusion that all government creditors are subject to abrogation under Section 106A brings one remaining question to the fore, whether federally recognized tribes qualify as governments. Petitioners do not seriously dispute that federally recognized tribes are governments, and for good reason. Federally recognized tribes exercise uniquely governmental functions. They have power to make their own substantive law in internal matters and to enforce that law in their own forums. 
they can also tax activities on the reservation. It is thus no surprise that Congress has repeatedly characterized tribes as governments, and this court has long recognized tribes' governmental status as well. We have done so generally and also in the specific context of tribal sovereign immunity. Tribal sovereign immunity, we have explained, is a necessary corollary to Indian sovereignty and self-governance. Putting the pieces together, our analysis of the question whether the code abrogates the sovereign immunity of federally recognized tribes is remarkably straightforward. The code unequivocally abrogates the sovereign immunity of all governments, categorically. Tribes are indisputably governments. Therefore, Section 106A unmistakably abrogates their sovereign immunity too. Part 4 Petitioners raise two main arguments in an attempt to sow doubt into these clear statutory provisions. Neither creates the ambiguity petitioners seek. Section A. For their opening salvo, petitioners try to make hay out of the simple fact that neither Section 101.27 nor Section 106A mentions Indian tribes by name. Had Congress wanted to abrogate tribal sovereign immunity, petitioners claim, the most natural and obvious way to have expressed that intent would have been to reference Indian tribes specifically, rather than smuggle them into a broadly worded catch-all phrase. But as explained at the outset, the clear statement rule is not a magic words requirement. Thus, Congress did not have to include a specific reference to federally recognized tribes in order to make clear that it intended for tribes to be covered by the abrogation provision. As long as Congress speaks unequivocally, it passes the clear statement test, regardless of whether it articulated its intent in the most straightforward way. Trying a different tack, petitioners point to historical practice. In statute after statute, they say, Congress has specifically mentioned Indian tribes when abrogating their sovereign immunity, and in no case has this court ever found an abrogation of tribal sovereign immunity where the statute did not reference Indian tribes explicitly. These statistics sound quite noteworthy at first glance but they do not move the needle in this case. For one thing, none of petitioners' cited examples involved a statutory provision that was worded analogously to, and structured like, the ones at issue here. Moreover, the universe of cases in which we have addressed federal statutes abrogating tribal sovereign immunity is exceedingly slim. In any event, the fact that Congress has referenced tribes specifically in some statutes abrogating tribal sovereign immunity does not foreclose it from using different language to accomplish that same goal in other statutory contexts. Even petitioners appeared to concede this basic point. They agree that Congress could have used a phrase like every government or any government with sovereign immunity 
to express unambiguously the requisite intent to abrogate the sovereign immunity of tribes. For the reasons discussed above, we believe Congress did just that. Section B. Petitioners further contend that even if the relevant provisions could theoretically cover tribes, the statute can plausibly be read in a way that preserves their immunity. 1. According to petitioners, the catch-all phrase, other foreign or domestic government, might simply capture entities created through interstate compacts, which cannot neatly be characterized as a state or an instrumentality of a state, under Section 10127's enumerated list. Interpreted in that fashion, petitioners maintain that catch-all phrase would exclude governmental entities that are not purely foreign or purely domestic, like tribes or the International Monetary Fund, IMF. If this interpretation of the statute sounds far-fetched, that is because it is. To find petitioners' construction plausible, we would have to interpret other foreign or domestic government to impose a rigid division between foreign governments on the one hand and domestic governments on the other, leaving out any governmental entity that may have both foreign and domestic characteristics, like tribes or the IMF. But Congress has expressly instructed that the word or, as used in the code, is not exclusive. As a result, we have serious doubts that Congress meant for Section 10127 to elicit the laser focus on or that petitioners' reading of foreign or domestic would entail. The dissent's own arguments undermine any suggestion that Congress adopted such a siloed view. For instance, the dissent repeatedly paints tribes as occupying a hybrid position between foreign and domestic and posits that territories historically share this hybrid status as well. Yet, as the dissent readily acknowledges, Congress expressly included territories within Section 10127's definition of governmental unit. If, on the dissent's own account, territories are neither foreign nor domestic and fall within Section 10127's purview nonetheless, it is hard to see how Section 10127's catch-all phrase would simultaneously exclude other entities that share that same feature. In any case, neither petitioners nor the dissent explain why the code would draw such a line in the sand. None of the carefully calibrated exceptions noted in Part 3b for governmental units performing regulatory and tax-related functions turn on whether a government is purely foreign or domestic. Likewise, it is hard to see why the code would subject purely foreign or domestic governments to enforcement proceedings while at the same time immunizing government creditors that have both foreign and domestic attributes. Considering that the one thing every entity in Section 10127's enumerated list has in common is its governmental nature, and that is the same characteristic that matters when the code addresses governmental units from one provision to the next, we are highly skeptical that Congress distinguished between governments in the way petitioners suggest. 2. 
Undaunted, petitioners note that Congress has historically treated various types of governments differently for purposes of bankruptcy law. They assert that, in the decades leading up to the Bankruptcy Code's enactment, bankruptcy law afforded certain benefits to the United States or any state or any subdivision thereof, leaving out entities that did not fall into one of those enumerated categories. Even if petitioners' understanding of this history is correct, they have failed to demonstrate that the Code carried forward any such differential treatment. Congress ushered in a new unprecedented era in bankruptcy practice when it enacted the Code in 1978. Both Section 10127's definition of governmental unit and Section 106A's abrogation of sovereign immunity were some of the many changes Congress made. The prior statute did not provide a general definition for governmental entities, much less include any provision expressly abrogating government's sovereign immunity. Instead, it set forth a general definition for states, which encompassed territories, possessions, and the District of Columbia. Then, in each provision where governmental entities were relevant, Congress specified the particular governmental entities to which that provision pertained. Section 10127's definition of governmental unit has an undeniably broader reach than the statutory provisions that preceded it. Section 10127's definition includes, for instance, foreign countries and instrumentalities, when such entities had generally been previously absent and the expansive definition of governmental unit in Section 101.27 applies throughout the Bankruptcy Code. In addition, for those who find legislative history useful, the Senate and House reports that accompanied the Code indicate that governmental unit was intended to be defined in the broadest sense. When Congress later added Section 106A's abrogation provision, it was that comprehensive definition of governmental unit that Congress used to specify the scope of the abrogation sweep. Thus, however Congress may have treated governmental entities in bankruptcy law prior to 1978, it had clearly altered its view about the scope of coverage relative to governments, by the time it enacted Section 101.27 and Section 106A. Those provisions unequivocally extend to all governments for the reasons already discussed, and we decline to read ambiguity into the statute where none exists. We find that the First Circuit correctly concluded that the Bankruptcy Code unambiguously abrogates tribal sovereign immunity. Therefore, the decision below is affirmed. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of this opinion. Until next episode... Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.